Hi there, this is Yarrow, and welcome to Vested Capital episode number 21, featuring my guest, Sarah Mauskoff, the founder of Winnie.com. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money and put their capital to work. I interview startup founders, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in technology. My guest today, Sarah, the co-founder of Winnie.com, is a daycare and preschool platform. So she built this company to connect parents who are looking for daycare with the daycare providers all around the United States at the moment. And I was a little surprised to hear that this is a marketplace that isn't really well served in terms of technical solutions. So Winnie is blazing a path in this space, which is why it's also doing so well. It is a marketplace. So Sarah and her team have had to initially provide supply, which means getting all the necessary information about daycare and preschool providers around the country, and then making sure that parents know this platform exists. So they're the, obviously the users and potentially the buyers, although it remains free for parents. They're monetizing on the daycare and preschool provider side. Sarah talks about the current monetization strategy she talks about how they were able to build the first version and find information, basically create the first side of the platform, the supply side, and then how people are currently discovering it. Obviously, search is a big deal, but it's becoming a brand. It's, you know, word of mouth. You go to Winnie to find what you need about daycare and preschool. It's really an amazing space to be in. I, I'm a little surprised how excited I got listening to her, how she really is entering a market that is huge. I think about how many parents have children and then this decision they have to make about where to place their kids, possibly the first time ever with strangers. It's their education. It's a big decision and it involves big money too. This is not a small amount of money they spend. Sarah noted it's about $14,000 a year kind of for an entry-level daycare preschool situation. It can be as much as triple that for the more expensive ones. So it's a lot of money to be thinking about spending and Winnie is well-placed to help make that decision easier for parents. So really big mission. And a really great interview. I, I love talking to Sarah because she talked about what it was like, first of all, coming up with the idea and what did they focus on building and how they kind of zeroed in on this space that they're operating in now, what it was like raising funding, how they did that, what they used the money for, both in the initial seed round of 500000 roughly and the more recent round of, of $9 million. What it's been like raising that money, it actually was a little bit more challenging than I expected it to be. I thought this was a no-brainer because it's such a big market. But huh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised with a lot of men being the ones deciding about where to invest money. And they're not the ones who have had the experience possibly with placing kids in daycare and solving that problem. They didn't really understand the need. They didn't see it as a, a big idea. So, in fact, the most recent raise of $9 million was backed by an all-female-led investment capital firm called Rethink Impact. So, And that was their Series A that was just done recently as I record this interview with Sarah. So overall, really fun interview, really great story. If you want to hear about building a two-sided marketplace, a female founder, venture capital backed, all the cool things about startups are in this story. And I'll know you'll love hearing from Sarah. And thank you, Sarah, for really being transparent and breaking down a lot of the behind-the-scenes things that you've done with your co-founder. And okay, before I hit the play button, as always, the sponsor for today's episode is my company, InboxDone.com. We provide a virtual executive assistant for CEOs, founders, leaders, professionals, anyone who's in a kind of a busy role, and you need someone to step in and take over managing your email, replying to your messages, dealing with your calendar, dealing with all those everyday tasks that might come up as a result of your emails too, whether it's doing research on guests or people you're going to be meeting with, whether it's just research for anything kind of decision making you're doing within your company or your role. Obviously, it's the back and forwards with scheduling. It's dealing with all those everyday emails that you probably should not be dealing with, like newsletters, software updates, spam, questions that are not that important, but still need to be answered, but not by you. All of that, we take over. We assign you two dedicated people who have been specially trained with superior communication, 
more often than not US based. Uh, we do have some Aussies, some Europeans, so we can cover different time zones, but we always focus on superior communication. And we only hire about 1% of every thousand people who apply. And I, I'm not joking when I say that because we do get somewhere between 10 and 40 applicants per day. So we're getting a lot of people applying, but only 1% of them roughly make it through our 10 step hiring, vetting and uh, testing and training process we put them through. That's what we bring to the table. We're the hiring and testing department. So you don't have to do that. You don't have to source amazing people. And we've always got your back. So if you need more dedicated virtual executive assistants, we can supply more as you grow, as you need more help. Just head to inboxdone.com if you want freedom, if you want to get some more hours in your day because you're no longer doing those low-level activities like email, like scheduling, like admin tasks. That's inboxdone.com. Okay, that's it from me. Now we're going to begin today's interview with Sarah, the co-founder of Winnie.com. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting. So I'm looking forward to hearing about your company, Winnie.com. I'm going to let you describe what that is and how things are going. Maybe we can start with that. What exactly is Winnie and you know, where are you at in terms of growing the startup? Yeah. So Winnie is a marketplace for childcare and education. We really got our start with daycare and preschool. We have over 250,000 licensed daycares and preschools on our platform. Parents come to Winnie and for free, they can search and filter and find the daycares and preschools that meet their needs. So see things like prices and parent reviews and schedules and all this stuff that was just really hard to find on the internet before. And like you said, you can find us at Winnie.com. And we also have apps for iPhone and Android. Nice. So I know you've raised some capital. I actually really liked some of the, the titles, it's the press you guys had when you raised your most recent round, like um, this from Business Insider, two pregnant co-founders raised $9 million for a startup that tackles a universal problem for millennial parents. So obviously, you guys are venture-backed. I think that's your second round of funding. Is that right? Well, depends how you count it. We raised yeah. <laughs> like a, quote, pre-seed round, okay. then our seed round, and then our Series A. Okay. Yeah. There's so many rounds nowadays. It's <laughs> So many. <laughs> yeah. So many. Okay. Now, the other thing, obviously, I'd like to dive into your past and, and how Winnie was built. But even before that, I was looking at your LinkedIn, actually, and I was like, you've got a bit of a who's who. I see YouTube, Google, and Twitter in your background there on LinkedIn. So, you kind of really experienced some of the biggest companies. I'd love to like go back in time, maybe even start even before that. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So, I am a Philly girl at heart, which is what gives me my grit. <laughs> Um, and I went to college at MIT and experienced the cold weather of the Boston area. And so when I heard about this whole, and I, I majored in computer science, which was the cool thing to do at MIT. I was just trying to be cool and fit in. All right. And so after experiencing four years of freezing cold weather, I heard that there were tech jobs in California and I didn't realize San Francisco was not like warm California. I thought it was like, oh, sunny San Francisco. <laughs> so Google came to my campus and was hiring and I was like, this sounds great. Like I can move to California. I can be in this warm weather. And Google was like such a cool company to work for at the time, I'm sure still is, but this was, you know, back in 2007. <laughs> so I, I took it. I went out to San Francisco. Yeah. Who says no to Google, right? So I'm curious. So even before you, you started in college, were you a technical sort of person? Were you always interested in maybe programming language and things like that? I was always into math, but I had no idea what programming really was. Like it wasn't taught at my school. I had no exposure to it. So when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a math major. And I actually started out as a math major and took a bunch of math classes. But at MIT, it was so collaborative. Everyone was like working on these like problem sets together. And I was like alone doing all my math problems. There was no, <laughs> none of my friends were math majors. And I was like, I want to, I want to have friends. And computer science, it turned out I could use a lot of my math credits. It's obviously, there's a lot of kind of theoretical computer science classes that are really just math classes. And so that's kind of how I, I got into it. But I'm super glad I did because I think uh, it opened up a lot of opportunity that would not have 
have been the same as a math major. Yeah, no doubt. It's funny. Math, like I think of an academic career or a teaching career, but then as soon as you just switch to computer science, it's suddenly like anything and everything kind of right. opens up <laughs> in terms of jobs. When you started with Google, do you get placed in a department? Because obviously Google is massive. Even in 2007, that was fairly early, but they must have at least had... I don't know, obviously search and AdWords and maps and all these departments opening up. Did you get to choose one or did they place you somewhere? So I joined this like interesting rotation program that I don't think they actually have anymore. It was not the famous like associate product manager program. It was this group called Partner Solutions. And basically it was like kind of the technical arm of the partnerships team. So as Google did a large partnership with an outside company, there would be lots of technical integration work and product to build. And that was where kind of this group played. And so it was cool in that I got to kind of see both the business side of things and also build products. And that's where I kind of realized, especially as I rotated onto YouTube, that I really liked the product building part of it. That was really fun and exciting. And and working with like really smart engineers was awesome. And I was like, I want to try this product manager thing and started, you know, kind of looking at product manager jobs, both inside Google and at other companies I was excited about. And one, one company I was super excited about was Twitter because I was a big <laughs> user of Twitter at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, that's how I wound up there. Okay. Before we talk about Twitter, I am curious too, when it comes to, when you say product, like obviously as a startup founder, that I understand you you have your own product you're probably the one building the very first version of it and obviously I, I want to share that story with Winnie but when you jump into a place like Google you're not suddenly responsible for an entire product yourself right you join a team who might be working on the entire interface for YouTube for example how does it work when you transition from say MIT graduate then you slot into Google or YouTube you know same place really and you are working on product do you like get told here you're responsible for this little button on the YouTube player like how do you make that uh, transition yeah you know it's been interesting like throughout my career I've joined smaller and smaller companies <laughs> ultimately my own which is the smallest and hopefully not for long though right <laughs> right <laughs> one day we will uh, be bigger than Google as you go to smaller and smaller companies your scope obviously increases and you don't just get to control the color of a button but the entire product area or feature and However, there's trade-offs in that you get a lot less help and you have to do a lot more yourself and don't have those amazing other team members to learn from. So I, I actually think, you know, starting my career at a company where there were really talented people to learn from and network with, these are people I still keep in touch with today, was super beneficial. And I not to deter anyone from joining a startup right out of college, but I think I learned a lot from being at a bigger company and kind of seeing the right way, the quote, right way yeah. to do things. <laughs> the big way. Was that scary? Like I can only imagine coming out of college and then suddenly you're in perhaps the most famous computer company in the world, just even thinking like, am I going to be able to create what they need me to create? That would be my my fear, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a it was a really hard mindset shift for me to go from in school, you're told exactly what to do and how to get a good grade. You take these tests and you hand in these assignments and then you get your A at the end of the day. And when you're in a workplace, whether it's a big company or a very small company, you have to figure out what it is that you really should be working on. No one really tells you necessarily what to do, how to spend every minute of your time. Or even if you kind of have a general sense, they don't necessarily tell you how to get an A doing it. So that was kind of a big shift. And I had to make that shift again, even starting my own company where you get even less guidance and management. More autonomy. Yeah. So tell me with Twitter, (laughs) obviously Google's great. Twitter is great. Why was there a desire to switch companies? Yeah. I mean, at the time, Twitter was not really great in terms of it wasn't really a known (laughs) quantity back in 2010 when I joined. It had a lot of press and people talked about it. But when I told my parents, they were like, are you crazy? You're joining for this startup like thing that doesn't really add any value to the world. Like what is Twitter doing to help people? And obviously like no one says that now it's clear what an impact on society Twitter has had. 
But at the time, it was just seen as like a place to kind of put a status message and kind of like a joke. And so everyone thought I was crazy for leaving, you know, a pretty established big technology company for Twitter. And in retrospect, that was not so crazy and has paid off for me in many ways. And I think after that move, I just gained a lot more confidence. A lot of times these bets don't work out, but to have my first one kind of work, be like, look, I joined this thing that wasn't anything and then became something really major and got to see the company IPO and grow just a massive amount. It gave me a lot of confidence to then take that to my next move and then ultimately my own company. Yeah, nice. I can imagine your parents when they saw like the Arab revolution happening because of people twittering to, you know, organize meetups. It's been okay, this company did have an impact on society. But with Twitter, just quickly, you sounds like you were early enough. I'm always curious when you do get in as whatever it is, first 10, first 20 or something employees at a company that does have the success of Twitter. Do you like, I don't know if this is your, your case and, and, you know, please tell me if it is, but were you able to get enough early equity that you were very tied into the success of Twitter for your, you know, your potential future net worth even? Like, you know, you're thinking about this is my retirement money or this could be my house or something like that. Were you tied in that way? No. So I joined around 200 employees, which okay. was still very early compared to where Twitter is today. And I think that the thing I always tell people is like, it's not really, you could join a company as the second employee in that company could go nowhere. It's it's how you think the company could grow from when you join. You know, you could have joined Stripe as the 200th employee and look at where Stripe is today, you, you'd be able to retire. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what is the company valued at today? And where do you think it could be valued at is kind of the bet you're making And then, of course, thinking about your equity, and I don't think I really prioritize that as like a young 20-something. And, you know, of course, hindsight is 20-20. But (laughs) I was was like, oh, make a good salary. That'll be great. I can pay my rent. I wish, in retrospect, I had negotiated for more equity. (laughs) But it was still a great learning experience to get to be at Twitter through that phase. And I think the most value I extracted was not the financial outcome, which could have obviously been a lot better, but was really the what I learned and, and the people I met along the way. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. It's funny. I, now I, I feel like it's not obvious. To me, it seems like it should be, but I, I, I'm so immersed in the startup world that it's like, of course, equity is a part of what you're thinking about as a, a new programmer employee at a tech startup. But I realized too, if I think back to my 20s, I would not have been thinking about equity whatsoever. It would have been just like, let's find a job at a company I want to work at. And that would have been about it. So I haven't really heard anything entrepreneurial yet in your life story so far with these first two companies. So you were very much programmer working for other companies. When did the inkling for I might want to do my own thing start to bubble up in your brain? Yeah. And I was a product manager. So I was kind of even removed from the actual making of the product in that way. Like you're, you're a little bit higher level in terms of your, you know, spending a lot of your time communicating internally and pitching stakeholders, not even getting to build the actual thing. I never had that entrepreneurial drive. Like I am not the kid that had a lemonade stand or had some side business. I was always the type of person and I still really am that wanted to just execute on a thing and kind of achieve. But I liked you know, not a lot of ambiguity, (laughs) just like knowing exactly what I had to do. So I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. I thought I would work through the ranks of a company and be a C-level executive someday, but not a CEO. And it really wasn't until I had my first daughter that I realized there was a huge opportunity to build something for parents. And that I had worked with these amazing people throughout my career, solving really hard problems, really talented people. And none of those people were doing anything for parents. Uh, None of those people were making the most important thing that was top of mind to me any easier or better. And I saw that as both an opportunity and also like something I felt if I didn't do this and I didn't work on this problem, like who would? Like here I was, I had a lot of privilege and talent and a network 
And if I was like, nah, I won't do it. I'll let someone else do it. I, I felt like no one would ever do it. And no one, you know, in the five and a half years of building Winnie, still no one has done what we've built. We have no competitors, really. So I was right. No one would do this. And we are, we are changing lives. So I'm, I'm glad I did. And I think the impact we can have is still so much greater. But just seeing the impact we've had already, it, it is mind blowing. So just to clarify, like, obviously, you have a child, and there's a lot of problems, no doubt, when you have a child that you suddenly have never had to deal with before. Why did childcare surface as the one you felt was the most desirable for you to even, you know, go after with the startup idea? Yeah, so it took us a while to figure out that childcare was the thing we should be working on. We we started Winnie, and I met my co-founder, while we were both working at Postmates, we both had young children. And my co-founder is extremely talented. She's a designer, an engineer. She's our head of product. She's like everything. And so I had like kind of hooked up with this really talented person. And I felt like, wow, like I, we should be doing something to help parents. And she felt the same way, but we didn't know what. We just knew like we could build a really talented team we had the insight, we could fundraise, like, we got to do something here, but we had no idea. And and the first few things we tried did not work. <laughs> they didn't have product market fit, we actually spent years iterating to get to where we are today. But ultimately, what it came down to is like, we can't really solve anything for parents unless we solve their most basic, fundamental need, which is the care and education of their children. Like there is absolutely nothing that trumps that. Like if you cannot care and educate your kids, none of this other stuff matters. And so that was really a, a great starting point. And then the fact that literally no one was was operating in this Going in space, space for the yeah. most part, or the incumbents were just so bad, so horrible <laughs> that it certainly helped that it was just like this huge white space that we we felt like we could tackle this and kind of gain traction pretty quickly. I totally forgot to mention the Postmates connection from from Twitter to Postmates to now Winnie. Just quickly, the reason you switched from Twitter to Postmates was again just wanting to be in a new new smaller company or So I had spent 4 years at Twitter and by that time had worked on a bunch of different areas of the product and really wanted the experience of like building a team and working with a smaller team being on the executive team at a company and was able to kind of get that moving to a smaller company. And it was also Postmates was a product I used a lot at the time and was important in my life. And I think that's kind of a, has been a theme for me. Like the thing I work on has to be meaningful to my life. (laughs) And I kind of felt like I wanted to work on something that I was a, a big user of I like the way you've got this progression from super big company or reasonably big company at the time, Google, and slightly smaller startup, Twitter, and then even smaller Postmates. It's almost like you're you're gaining skills and then you're also, because you're working at a smaller company, you have more responsibility, more leadership. And then, of course, when you start your own thing, it's the ultimate in leadership and being in complete yeah. control. You mentioned before, so you're in Postmates, you meet your co-founder, you, you realize she's super talented. Did it go like you both were pregnant around the same time and you both found yourselves talking about the same sort of problems? Because you did mention Winnie's current iteration about childcare wasn't the first version. You had lots of things you played around with. Was that something you two did as like a side hustle while you were in Postmates? Or did you fully quit and then raise money for an idea and then pivot to another one? How did it play out in the early days? Yeah. So first of all, I had just had my first daughter and she had two young children already. So when I came back to work after my brief maternity leave, I was like, whoa, this is really effing hard. It is hard to be a working parent. And it has changed my life in these ways that I did not expect. I thought I would just pop out this baby, get right back to work and like everything would be great. And suddenly my whole mindset shifted and what I cared about in life shifted and this child, my daughter, <laughs> was more important to me than I expected. I'm more, I more, I thought about her more than I expected I would before having children. And I still do today. So A disrupting force. <laughs> um, so we just kind of 
talked about parenting. I didn't know a lot of parents at the time. My friends didn't really have kids. And so we just kind of bonded over being parents and working in tech, being mothers. And when we decided it would be more meaningful in our lives to build something for parents, we realized like there was no side hustle. <laughs> like as a parent, your side hustle is parenting as a working parent. There is no time for an additional side hustle, at least not for us. And then also we wanted to build a company that we would want to work at as working parents. We both felt like outsiders in tech and at Postmates at the time. We were nursing moms and like it just, we felt like kind of freaks. We were like, we want to build a company where we feel like this is the norm. And we have definitely succeeded in that. Like that is one of the things I'm most proud of at Winnie is like, it is just the norm to have children and to be parenting alongside of working obviously with great childcare in the mix. <laughs> I should hope so. Yeah. <laughs> We've just built a company that we feel like we could work at for the rest of our lives, which is something that was really important to us both. So it, it wasn't a side hustle. So did you two quit, raise funding, and what were you pitching at that point? Yeah, we quit. Initially, we didn't raise funding. And I, I mean, that speaks to privilege. Like We felt like there are not many people in the world who can just quit and not have any income and work on what they feel like is important to work on and also be builders like we ourselves built the first version of Winnie. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And so we just felt like there's not many people in this position. We've got to take advantage of it. So just to clarify, when you say you, you didn't need funding, is that because you could rely on your spouses or you had some money saved up from previous jobs or? Yeah, both. I mean, both. we both have partners, but we also have savings and I had done fairly well in my career. And so was I was there a runway though? Like, did you feel like you had to succeed in 12 months? Like how long did you give yourselves to make it work? You know, we never really talked about that. We probably <laughs> should have. <laughs> but what happened was like, as soon as we decided to start something, there were some people that came to us that we had known from other jobs that were now investors that were like, why don't you raise a little bit of funding? And that was that pre-seed I spoke to. And that kind of just gave us some, some capital, the ability to hire and the ability to feel like we weren't eating into our savings if it took us some time to get to product market fit. And oh boy, did it take us time. <laughs> it did. Uh, so I'm very glad in retrospect that we raised because I think we would have probably been trying to monetize and make a quick buck sooner. And it was really lucky that we got the opportunity to just build a lot of value and figure out the thing that really created value in the world before we had to worry about how do we make money. Okay, cool. Forgive me for getting really granular, but I find it very interesting at this phase of a startup. So what was that first seed? If I like initial investor, is that angel oh. investing, I guess, or... It was actually a firm called Homebrew. They invest or now they, I think, have kind of grown a bunch and invest in all different stages. But at the time, you know, they would invest even pre-product. So we didn't wow. have anything built. We knew the partners at Homebrew quite well from previous jobs. And they were just willing to make a bet on us really at the end of the day. Okay, so they, they give you half a million dollars, you go hire a couple engineers. Is that sort of how it plays out in that very first? Yeah, I think they even gave us less and we okay. kind of then were able to get other investors along. And so I think in total in that very first round, it was like 500K of total funding, maybe even okay. less. But that was a lot to work with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic starting point for no product yet for sure. Yeah. How do you spend that? I'm always like, I can imagine myself in that situation. I'm like, well, I've got all these ideas for features I want to build. You being technical can build a certain amount each day. You're only one person and maybe your co-founder, you said she was technical too. So you yeah. both could work on product, but it still must feel a little bit slow. Like, do you think, all right, let's put all this money into engineering or are you thinking, no, we'll need to save some of this for marketing or something else? Like, how do you think about those first first few dollars spent yeah, we put it all into engineering um, and we still do. Like that is where we spend all of our money, product and engineering. Okay. Yeah. So we hired two engineers. We both worked on the product ourselves as well. And we built a first version in six months. We had it launched live in the app store. 
And so we could learn very quickly whether this thing was working and whether it really had product market fit. And spoiler alert, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what was that first version? Like, what, what did it do? So basically, it was kind of like a Yelp for parents. We had all different kinds of places listed in Winnie with sort of information about them and a community. It was sort of the kitchen sink, although that wasn't really that useful and didn't really do anything well, what we were able to learn from that was that there was one thing people were trying to do in our product that was changing their lives when they could do it, which was find daycare and preschool. So we saw people using the app to search for daycares and preschools near them. The app didn't do that well at all. And it kind of gave us this idea that like, what if the app did that part a lot better? And that's kind of where we got the idea for what Winnie is today. Okay, interesting. I've never had a child, so I don't know what the, like, I never needed to go to Google and search for childcare. So what was, before Winnie came along, the current way you would normally find childcare? Google is definitely one of them. So uh-huh. it's still, you know, this is our main source of, of users is, is people just typing into Google or new users, daycare near me or preschool near me or daycare, best daycares in San Francisco or whatever it may be. But also, it's very much still kind of like an offline private network sort of search where you'd ask your friends and you'd look around your neighborhood. It's still very much done the old fashioned way. And it takes parents weeks and months, and they're left with feeling like they don't have a lot of options, that those options are unaffordable, that there might be a long wait list because they don't actually know what all their options are and and can't really compare them without an aggregator like Winnie. Okay. I can imagine it's a huge decision. Like these are strangers you're going to leave your child with possibly the first time ever you leave them with strangers. And then you want to know things like references, who are the people looking after your children, uh, what kind of education might they be getting. And then like you said, if it's going to be handled more in a sort of underground network of parents talking to each other, that's all about trust through reference. I can imagine you're thinking, okay, can we take some of these ideas and digitize that so that there is a resource that sort of has the equivalent? Is that how you thought of, I guess, Winnie 2.0? Because you started as a Yelp. And then like, because if I think about Yelp, it's more like search results with reviews, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, what is that? And that was what Winnie sort of was initially too, is search results with reviews. How does it iterate from there to provide a better match to the point where I don't know how far away that version was to what you have today, like what was version two and version three and so on? Yeah. I mean, parents were really flying blind before Winnie. Like you just didn't have these critical pieces of information that you needed to make decisions. And when that happens, the demand, the people searching are at a just a tremendous disadvantage when there's this kind of information disparity. And what it leads to is like, you know, certain providers can be way more expensive just because they have better marketing presence with parents, but not actually provide a better quality of service. So we also wanted to really make level the playing field, make it about quality and comparing quality, which can be measured on a bunch of different levels. There's just some basic safety information that parents do need to know that they didn't know before winning, which is like, is this provider licensed? Is that license still in good standing? Parents weren't checking that or had any way to get to that information. And we made it front and center. So there was sort of the basic, let's just expose the information that parents need to make decisions, you know, very much what Zillow did for real estate. But then kind of the next level and where we're at today is like to really improve the way parents purchase care and education, we need the providers on board. We need them on the other side of the marketplace because they unlock the real both information and and value. Like they need to tell us whether they have open spaces and who those open spaces are for and the prices of their program and all the nitty gritty details about their program so we can make these matches and they need to be responsive to parents who inquire and so that has really been the big kind of unlock for us is, is getting those providers on. And then that flywheel really starts to spin when you have both the supply and demand using your platform. I was going to ask, actually, being a two-sided marketplace, that's always the challenge, right? You have to have supply and you have to have demand. And often you, 
can't really get demand until you have supply. And can you maybe, because I, I can imagine, all right, your technical team, you build the platform, you, you can allow people to search it and allow people to add information. Once it's there, do you then go, okay, we need to create a team that's like an an outbound connecting with all the daycare centers, getting them to onboard the information? Did you create a team to do that or how did that happen? Yeah. So I think the advantage we had here is like what existed was so, so bad that even just building the basic like directory of every licensed daycare and preschool was enough to be 100x better than anything that existed because that (laughs) didn't exist. And so that got us the demand. Like as soon as we started building that and putting these pages up and gaining national traction, we were ranking in Google search. People were talking about us. We were gaining like word of mouth traction. People were downloading our apps. And so we kind of were able to solve the demand side. And then the harder part was and is the supply getting the daycares and preschools on board. And now we're not just daycare and preschool, we're expanding into other forms of care and education. It's a super fragmented market and providers are not necessarily tech savvy, like not as tech savvy as parents necessarily may not use any technology to run their business and much to their disadvantage. Like if parents are are looking for these things on the internet and trying to connect through the internet, it's a problem as a business if you're not on the internet. And I think one of the things that really helped was actually COVID because it sort of forced adoption of technology. Even providers that were reluctant to adopt technology, like it made everyone in the world adopt technology in a way that that pace was sort of unprecedented. So really, that was a kind of a game changer for the provider adoption side. And it's sort of only accelerated from there. It was sort of the the tipping point event that was needed, I think, to really shake up the industry. And I'm really hopeful and optimistic that this industry is now going to be an internet industry and get all <laughs> of those efficiencies of the internet that this industry is desperately needs. Okay. The one thing I'm not quite understanding though, so you were able to create a directory without participation of the daycare centers. Yep. Is that just because that information is readily available? You just have to kind of collect it. But when you say participation, you mean they actually need to go in there and add certain parts of the information that you can't get from directories plus be responsive to queries and things like that. Is yep. that what you mean? Yeah. So the amazing thing about a lot of childcare data is it's public. It's just not accessible. Licensing data is required to be public in all 50 states, but it's not actually something parents can access easily on the internet. So building that integration with state licensing databases is a big part of the work we do. And yeah, that gets us really only basic information. And so it's, it is really critical that providers come on and, and we do have a bunch of kind of automated systems that get providers on Winnie, but also they find us very much in the same way parents do just through a Google search. Um, And that has been really helpful, especially during COVID when a lot of them had to turn to the internet to run and manage their business. They didn't really have a choice to provide a physical tour. They had to meet parents virtually. And so we were there. Like we were there when they were all having this moment of embracing the internet and that certainly helped. Okay. So I guess I'll encourage all the the listeners here to actually head to Winnie.com too because I know part of this for me is like I can think of a Yelp, but I'm sure there's more layers to how you're presenting information and how people can interact with all the providers. So we can obviously go and experience it on on Winnie.com. You're... You obviously made the choice to become venture-backed once you had the opportunity. And, and as I said at the very start of this, you have most recently raised $9 million, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in whatever round we want to call that, an A round or something like that. I'd love to know a couple of things. A, what do you do with $9 million? Do you keep pouring it into more engineers and more development? B, what was it like to actually be the CEO of a company raising $9 million, which I'm assuming is a little different, like a new experience you had compared to raising the very first initial seed funding? Let's start with those two so I don't overwhelm you with questions at once. (laughs) Yeah. So we did mostly spend it on product and engineering. I mean, we still like the majority of our expenses are the team. It's headcount. 
because we are building a platform. There's not a massive operational expense and there's not, you know, we're not physically building goods that we then sell. So it is the team that that Mm -hmm. costs the money. And I think, you know, while we definitely the core of our team are engineers, we, you know, now have some other functions like folks that talk to providers and uh, get them on board and also help them be really successful on our platform. And those functions are, are really important as we grow and scale. So definitely like expanding beyond what I'm personally good at and know and hiring for, like, which is product and engineering and, and really getting out of my comfort zone and realizing like to really grow and scale as a business, we need you know, sales and marketing and these other functions that are so critical. And was it hard to have more money? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the actual process of raising, though, how was uh, that? As a yeah, as you know, CEO? fundraising is is not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's tough because when you're fundraising, you're not necessarily working day to day on the business, and especially in the earlier stages, that can be really hard because you don't necessarily have that team of like executives behind you to run the business. And you are used to being the day-to-day manager of a lot of things. So that's kind of the hardest part for me is like context switching between meetings with investors and all the things that I just need to actually do to keep this business going day-to-day, like going into the office and picking up mail and like stuff. <laughs> it's like just even basic stuff that you don't you don't have anyone else covering at the earlier stages. I think it's also sometimes tough because the way investors might want to think about your business or interpret what you're building is not necessarily right. <laughs> it's their kind of quick split second decision based on like the mental model they have of the world. They haven't been working on this for the years that you have and they don't know all the nuances. And so trying to get that all across to investors in a short period of time, I've always found it really, really tough. Mm -hmm. And I think finally, like childcare and education is not the sexiest area for investors. And it should be. It's a massive, massive market, $212 billion industry in the US alone annually. But for whatever reason, probably because a lot of investors are white men who've never experienced this issue themselves before, or they have someone else handling childcare for them, they don't feel it viscerally. It just hasn't been a sexy area for investment. And so it's just, it's frustrating when you see a big opportunity and you know what you're working on is is huge and life-changing and meaningful. And then you get an investor who's like, I didn't really have this problem because my mm. live-in nanny is awesome. And, mm. you know, it's been fine. Once we found her, it's been great. It's like, that's not how the world works. Mm. <laughs> that's not how the majority of real people in this country operate. That's probably the most frustrating part for me about fundraising. If I'm, I'm just, again, reading your the information I found about your about that series A, it was Rethink Impact was the lead of that round and it was FEMA-led. So I think that speaks to what you're talking about there, having the sense of actually experiencing the problem. So understanding, you know, your vision and so on. I've never heard of them. So is that they like newer on the scene or have they been great? No, I mean, or? they're awesome. Rethink Impact is actually one of the largest funds that invests in women founders and they've been an incredible partner to us, as has Reach Capital, which led our seed round. We also have a woman on our board from Reach. And I mean, I, I think that is like one of the big missing pieces. It's like we need more women in investing roles at the highest levels, like not just, oh, there's a woman on the team and therefore we're covered. But like real decision makers who can have conviction and not need to convince a group of like, that's another thing I found is I would have a great connection with like, the woman investor, and then she would have to convince like all of her male partners Mm -hmm. that this thing was going to be huge. And they'd be like, "Ah, I don't know, childcare, education, is it really that big? Is it 
you know, is it an NFT? (laughs) And (laughs) then it would fall apart. And so having not just women at the table, but women who are able to make decisions, who are confident and convicted enough to make a bet in something that is not necessarily male dominated and sexy to men, I think is is what we we need to see more of. And like, we've just been so fortunate to have investors that have these firms that are not just have women at the table, but are actually women led Hmm. funds. It's surprising. I would have thought, just like you said, the total addressable market size, like how many babies are born is a pretty large market. You know, it's the entire human race, right? So, I would have been surprised that they wouldn't have seen the potential for this being like a billion dollar plus company. On that note, so it sounds like based on the story you're sort of sharing, a lot of product building has been so far your focus with Winnie, uh, which makes complete sense. And I know you said right at the start, before you switched to actually getting investors, you were thinking, well, we'll probably need to focus on revenue and actually have a monetization model earlier on because we need to be able to make money to keep going. And that's more like the sort of non-venture backed business model. But then you got backing. So, you were able to sort of focus on product and not necessarily think about the money side where are you at with that right now? Like, are you still just building features or do you need to show some sort of revenue return now? Or how does it look on the, the runway? Yeah. So we focused first on value creation prior to value capture, which okay. I think a lot of marketplaces do need to start this way to grow. Yeah. So we gave away a lot of value for free. And ultimately, we realized like we could start to capture some of this value. So the value is that like we are we are filling spaces in childcare and education providers. We are putting butts in seats. And we were doing that all for free. And, and childcare is a really, really expensive purchase. So when you think about the cost of full-time care on average in the United States, it's like $14,000 a year. And in some cities, it's like 3x as much. So, you know, even just filling one space, that's $14,000 in annual revenue that that business, you're adding to that business. So we we started realizing our, our customers were the daycares and preschools who are really benefiting from filling their spaces and earning revenue faster on those open spots and started basically monetizing them, getting a take of that value that we're sending them. And I mean, we're still very light on the value capture. In other words, like we're not taking anywhere near um, what we should be for the kind of value we're creating, but we're kind of okay with that for now as we grow our network and kind of increase the just overall size and scale of our business and, and just become more and more kind of fundamental. Like it's it's getting to be sort of impossible to do a daycare and preschool search without using Winnie at some point in your process, which is a great place to be as kind of an aggregator marketplace. And so we're we're really happy with how we're growing in that direction. And our revenue has kind of increased along with our growth. And just in the last year, like we grew our revenue 10x. We're, you know, very close to being a profitable business, like real profitability, (laughs) not, not this like kind of fake measure of profitability. So that's kind of a great place to be. And we're not in a rush to get there faster, because we, we feel like it's, it's very close. Okay, well, congratulations. It's not easy um, with the marketplace, especially like you said, you really got to build the value first and that's hard. So I can see, especially like, I don't know what the profit margin is for running a daycare center, like, you know, what their potential is for giving you guys part of that, you know, where they start resisting taking on Winnie uh, as a supplier, but I can imagine there's a lot of room. So, and not that's just like you said, one thing. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing about like the childcare industry is it it varies. Like like there are some businesses in childcare that are not even profitable themselves. Like they are running at a loss. Oh wow. And okay. there are other businesses that are extremely profitable. Like look at the nine billion dollar market cap company Bright Horizons that operates, you know, hundreds of daycares across the US. And part of that is we believe technology can help make these businesses more profitable and help them run a lot more efficiently. 
And so that's kind of where we see our role is like, can we make every childcare business that is high quality, a profitable, growing, thriving business? And then, of course, we can share in that, but we should be increasing the profitability of the business, not just like taking from the existing profit margin. Yeah, that makes sense. I can imagine for a lot of daycares, their presence on your site is their website. Like that's the only presence they it have is. online. So it's it's that way for about fifty percent of the providers on our wow. platform, which wow. is insane. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's almost like you're a Shopify for the daycare world, which I would never have thought of. But it's kind of uh, the way you could look at it. It was one thing I was thinking of that it's slipped my mind now. Um, while you were saying that, Sarah, how was it? But yeah, so with going forward with the growth of this, is it a case of you? managing okay we want to focus on value creation more than value capture like you said but at some point do you go okay now we're going to switch we've got such a presence we've really i don't know if you're going global or you know usa first but and then you think okay let's switch on premium listings let's switch on i don't know other types of subscriptions you could sell directly on the platform because you have such an audience of parents it could be other things is that the way your your vision is kind of like that big is that how you're thinking yeah i mean we just really believe in like making this process for both parents and providers a lot easier and better and more efficient. And the value capture kind of comes along with that. Like as we continue to improve their businesses and we continue to make this better for parents, like we just, this is a massive, massive market. There is no question of like how big this business can be. We do believe like it's very important to keep the product free for parents. Parents already pay way more than they can afford in childcare and education expenses. So we don't want to add to that. And we have a great customer in the business itself, the the daycare and preschool who we are helping to make more money. And so it just doesn't make sense for us to charge parents anything for now or the foreseeable future like Mm -hmm. i I think it would have to we'd have to really expand in some into some adjacent area for there to ever be something we charge parents for right right like you're not going to suddenly start selling nappies on the platform or something like that that's going to be quite divergent yeah maybe second last question here maybe wrap it up sarah the domain name winnie.com fantastic how did you manage to get that And, and where is there an origin story behind why you chose that name yeah so when we started winnie like First and foremost, before we even knew what product we were building, we knew it would be important to have a strong brand. For parenting in particular, like brand is everything. You trust a brand. And this, we knew we would be working on something that involved a lot of trust from parents and and really could be something that they would not just use, but remember and share with friends and really believe in. It was really important to us that it be a brand that was, you know, as inclusive as possible, not just for moms, not just for dads, for anyone with children in their lives, like caregivers, teachers, obviously moms and dads. And a lot in parenting is so exclusive. Like there's just this whole concept of a mother's group that is just basically for women, but only certain kinds of women of certain status. And what that does is it just makes it really hard for other people to participate in the caregiving process and increases the burden on like only certain people to do all this work. So it was just really important to us to pick a brand that could be as inclusive as possible. And then we also knew we wanted to build a business that would have a lot of traction on the internet. And so having a brand that was easy to say and spell and remember and get the domain and all the handles associated with it was important. So we we looked into that before we picked a, a name. So that's kind of how we landed with Winnie. It sort of had all those qualities and we were able to get the domain Winnie.com. How? Was it, it kind really of important a- for our like kind of strategy of we rank in search, but then ideally we're gaining enough traction in a region that people just remember us and can say like, oh, you're looking for daycare? Go to Winnie. Winnie. You're looking for your preschool? I found mine on Winnie. And then when they type in Winnie, it takes them to Winnie. (laughs) 
Um, the domain name itself, though, that, that's like a one word dot com. It, it can't have been easy. I'm, I'm guessing that wasn't available. You, you must have had to have purchased that from someone else, I'm guessing. We did have to buy it, but it was not being used. And I think it is important when we we had a, a domain broker, but it is important to do a bit of that research beforehand. Yeah. Because if we would have picked google.com, <laughs> there's no possible way in the world we could have ever gotten that domain, but we picked one that was not being really used right. or valued by anyone. Exactly. Like you wanted to have been like an adult entertainment site prior to switching to Winnie that would have had a you know bad sort of history <laughs> to connect with. Just a little curious too, maybe now I'll say second last question here, Sarah. Um, you, you're working with your co-founder and, and now it's been I'm sort of doing the math in my head. We raise $9 million around. You're probably looking at $50 million-ish valuations, depending on up or down. But that's huge. That's amazing. Like you two must be, you know, obviously very proud of what you've done. No doubt you see a big future as well. There's lots of work to do still. How are you two enjoying working together still since it was just you at the beginning and no doubt a bigger team now? Yeah. I mean, the co-founder relationship, it is for me, very similar to a marriage. <laughs> it's it's a long-term commitment and you have to work at it. It's not just this thing that's always going to be the, the best times ever. And you go through highs and lows and you really want someone that is going to be with you through all of that. My co-founder, Anne, is amazing. And we've both kind of been through real highs and lows during this journey of Winnie. My husband got cancer at one point in starting the company. I had two additional kids. She had one additional kid while we were working on this. She got quite sick at, at another point. And so there were times when we've both like leaned in, times when we've had to lean out and cover for the other one. I really didn't understand how critical a co-founder is to the kind of lasting position of your company. I really do not believe, I don't believe I could have parented my kids without my husband. I don't believe I could have gotten Winnie this far without my co-founder. I know people do it and mm -hmm. there are tons of single founders and there are tons of single parents. But for me, those two relationships have been so critical. I don't believe I personally could have done it without the support of my co-founder. Yeah, it really is like a marriage. I have a co-founder too for my own company and it is very much like not just making business decisions, but managing everything around life as well. So yeah. Last question. What is a day in the life of Sarah like at the moment? I'm imagining it's not like when the company was first started, when it was you probably sitting at a computer creating product, now you're doing hiring, you're fundraising. But what is a typical day for you like? Yeah, it's like so much less exciting during COVID because it's basically <laughs> me getting out of bed, maybe showering uh, and <laughs> going into my office and locking the door so my children don't come in and disturb me. But as far as like what I spend my time and energy on, it's really never the product. And I think that has been the hardest thing for me as a product person, as someone who loves getting into the weeds and working on the nitty gritty, knowing that like that is not the best use of my time. One of the top things I spend my time on is communication. It's communicating internally, like what is important at any time and making sure that everyone has the right context to make decisions and to build independently of me. And it's external communication to our board, to investors, to potential investors. It's to our customers and potential customers. I often feel just like a broken record. I'm often repeating the same things. And I think it's really underestimated how important that is. So I, I end my days a lot of times with like no voice. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm I'm having that now, but like <laughs> it, it's because you're you're just doing a lot of communication, and that is kind of your main value as a leader is like you hold all the context, and you need to make sure that other people have that context to be able to expand and scale what you could do yourself. I'm glad your voice has lasted all the way to the <laughs> end of this episode, Sarah. So, <laughs> anything else you want to throw at everyone before we wrap up the interview? No, thank you so much. This was wonderful. 
No, I appreciate it. And, and thank you for sharing, you know, the whole story, the early days and everything you're doing now. I feel like we're kind of catching you maybe round one of three or four for Winnie with lots, lots of potential growth uh, in your future. So I look forward to, to watching how everything goes. And yeah, thank you for sharing the story. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Sarah and uh, the Winnie.com story. I especially like that because I'm always thinking about a potential marketplace idea that I could possibly start in my future. But I know the challenges of engineering. Obviously, you need either to be an engineer and certainly have money to hire engineers to build a platform, whether it is SaaS-based or or marketplace, web-based, whatever it is, you're going to need that technical solution. And hearing how Sarah built her platform, how she used her funding what it was like just growing the company. It was really insightful. My brain was certainly clicking away in the background. And I really appreciated Sarah being so open and transparent, sharing those steps she went through. And I'm looking forward to seeing where Winnie goes. Part of me was also saying, geez, I wish I could have invested in Winnie during that first seed round, being one of her angel investors. I certainly would have said yes. I think it is a massive market that certainly needs a solution. And it's it's a high value market. The amount of money being spent in this space is massive. So that's a lot of powerful decision making to be a part of that I think Winnie right now is very well placed. So as always, if you liked this episode, if you have a friend or a family member or a colleague would benefit from hearing Sarah's story, send them to episode 21 of Vested Capital, the podcast that you just listened to, and tell them they should subscribe and listen to this episode 21 with Sarah, the founder of Winnie.com. And also, you should subscribe as well. If you haven't, click the plus button, the follow button, the subscribe button. Whatever app you're using, there'll be a button like that that you can click to subscribe. And you can also do that by going to my blog, yaro.blog. You'll see a link for the podcast there or just vestedcapitalpodcast.com. I have that domain name. It redirects to the podcast page on my blog as well. Spread the word. I really appreciate your reviews on iTunes as well. Obviously, that really helps. If you have a minute or two and you've listened to this right now on iTunes, click that review button, leave five stars, let me know what you like about the show. And also, if you happen to have any guests you think would be great, I love hearing from successful founders like Sarah, people doing amazing things with crypto, with real estate, with investing. Send them my way. Love to hear and share their story on the Vested Capital Show. Okay, that's it from me. My name is Yarrow. I will talk to you on the very next episode of Vested Capital. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.